would like to ask a favor from you. Please do not clap after my talk. There is a very important esoteric reason for that. You see, my trying to convey something to you and your attention, by the way, that happens in every assembly and in every lecture, but especially spiritual talks. As I said, my trying to put it over to you as clearly as possible and your attention, we create a wonderful edifice on the inner plane. Sometimes it looks like a cathedral. Now, you say, what could that be? You can imagine, but it's only a help to the imagination and to the mind. You can imagine that there are lovely spirits or fairies or angels holding itself by the hand, creating this lovely edifice. And it's usually much, much higher than the real building. But when we begin to clap, we clap it all to pieces. Then there is another thing which is very important. Those beings do help us to remember. Mind you, sometimes we don't remember anything even after the lecture, never mind. But, yeah. but if we clap, we definitely remember less. So I think it is perhaps better if we don't clap. In India, nobody does after a spiritual talk, nor uh, after musical evening, at least whenever in India, 25 years ago, it wasn't. Please, don't clap. I would like to begin with a quotation, one of my favorite quotations. It's the Henry Thomas Hamblin, a contemporary mystic. He says, and with this quotation, I plunge you immediately into a paradox. True religion, he says, a practical mysticism which finds God not only in the silence of the soul but also in all the affairs of life. The only mysticism that appeals to me is the kind which finds God in all things, in all men and in all experiences and which goes out into the highways and byways and bears the heat and the burden of the day. To be in the heat of the road, to be with us, to bear our burden. It's a very practical thing, very human thing. But mystical experiences cannot be conveyed. They are inexplicable. Now here is the paradox. How is it possible? It can be reconciled, and perhaps together we will be able to do it. Now, the problem with mysticism is that on the inner plane, things do not work out as it can be understood with our minds. Now, we all know that the mind knows only and can understand only by comparison. I know that this is white, or this is black, or this is blue, because other colors exist. This is also one of the problems why we can't, can never know God. There is nothing to be co to compare with. If there were two gods, 
can't compare one God with another, and then we will know. But like that, it's hopeless. So you see, this is one of the great problems. Now the sages of India, they say that mind is a power of ignorance. Why? Because there must be first a knower and an object to know. So the mind can, so to say, understand outside itself. That's why it is so difficult to steal the mind. All yogis know that it's a very, very difficult thing. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna says to the Krishna, the charioteer, the mind is more difficult to curb than the wind, which is perfectly true. But you see, on the inner planes, in the deeper states of meditation, already in the deeper states of meditation, but so much more in the state of Samadhi, there is no knower and no object to know. Both the knowledge and the, the person who is supposed to know it are one and the same thing. So you see, this is already quite impossible to understand for the mind. I remember my first experience of a superconscious state because it was the first I remember it so well afterwards others came and they're always different I'm going to speak about it later but because it was the first I always remembered it so vividly there was me alone in infinite light in infinite omnipotence but there was no God I remember dimly with this little bit of mind which remained, because there is hardly any mind, hoping, finding something like perhaps God or death or some death with capital T. There was none. There was nothing. Only me. And that can be a shattering experience. It was, of course. But Later on, others came and one understood much more. But the other experiences were not so sensational. The first one was pretty grim, perhaps. Now, I just said that God, or ultimate truth, which is one is the same thing, for God is truth, cannot be known for lack of comparison. But Perhaps, I mean, just perhaps, the inner image of the self can be known. And the inner image of the self is something so magnificent, so unbelievable, that really one can truly say it is our Father in Heaven, our personal God to whom we can pray. Truly it is so. You know, a great teacher, before he puts the disciples' faith into the dust, where death is the process of helping the human being to diminish the self, because one doesn't get rid of the self, of the little self, I mean, one doesn't kill it, it's nonsense. But 
it has to be controlled to such a degree uh, that we are the masters of it. It doesn't control us. You see, our mind is thinking us. All day long we have this constant, this automatic thoughts. We think of tomorrow, we remember the things, we have soliloquies, we have, we have dialogues, all day long it goes on. And here also, and I hope we, I mentioned it in, in the question time, it's not time for that yet, here lies the secret of reincarnation. How the mind deceives us and drags us back into this eternal field of causation. So the teacher, in order that the disciples shouldn't run away, quite frankly, done something very wonderful. He will show you, and I do not know if it is a split second or if it is the whole night. Of course, one can never know there, somewhere. There is no time. Time is on the level of the mind again. And when one begins to control the mind, the, every yogi experiences that quite clearly. So the teacher gives a momentary or a long, I don't know, vision of what human beings look like somewhere. There they are no more, no more human, but something very much more than that. It is And the disciple is never the same again. Never and never again one can look at another without remembering. And every time you meet a new person, instinctively you think, how must he or she look like there? It needs only a very short moment, perhaps, I do not know. But we are children of light. And I do not believe in sin. Sin is rubbish. It's ignorant. That's all. Sin doesn't exist. I always quarrel with Christianity because of that. And quite frankly, I, I think this is, this is something which, one, which hum, human beings shouldn't have been told. We are children of light, absolutely. All our cells, all our body is like a galaxy. Everything is moving, everything is sparkling, everything is magnificent. I think, I always say, if a tiny little being, like a flea or microbe, should see a human being in the dark, they would say, my goodness me, this is a galaxy. How the forces and the energies work along the nerve center. We are beautiful somewhere, only we do not know it. But Kata Upanishad says that, if you identify yourself with your physical body, you are small and mortal and weak. But if you identify yourself with that, thou art that, O Nachiketa. It is like that. So let's try. Let's see if at least partially we could understand something. Now, Ardery, in his book on Sufism, says, Mysticism of the two kinds is a direct approach to God, so that conscious union with the divine is accomplished in this life. And Evelyn Underhill defines it as follows. Mysticism is the art of union with reality. The mystic is a person who has attained that union in greater or lesser degree, or who aims at at and believes 
in such attainment. My teacher told me, reality must be reached in this life if you are not too stupid and not too lazy. Just not a quotation, verbatim, what he said to me. And I kept thinking, now how is it? It is said in all books that we need uh, hundreds of years or hundreds of incarnations. I think Buddha had over 700 incarnations. I don't remember, sorry. I don't have the quotation exactly here. To reach reality. How can it be done in 10 years' time? Well, you see, my little teacher was a Sufi. And that particular line of Sufi, it's a rather demanding one, what ethics are concerned in discipline. And you wouldn't be attracted to, be, uh, to, attracted to this path if, if they are not already the last life. Here could be perhaps the explanation for it. I could explain it only like that. that it seems to me that this is the only logical explanation. And otherwise, how can we reach it? Now, all joys are included in the deeper states of mystical meditation. But on the other hand, to be a mystic is simply to participate here and now in real eternal life in the fullest deepest sense which is possible to man. Our teacher used to say no hysterism, please, no exaggeration. Stand with both feet on the ground, but with your head you have you must support the vault of the sky. To discourage all these exaggerations, all these visions and things. He says, yes, yes, it is all right. It is our birthright to have visions. And we go on the path, it's fine. But please, look at it objectively. It is not yet reality. Reality is one. If there is you and the vision, there are two. It's not, it's not reality. For us beginners, it was rather difficult, because after 23 years, one begins to understand, not before. So the highest stage of union is an indescribable experience in which all idea of images and forms and differences has completely vanished. All consciousness of self and of all things has gone and the soul has plunged into the abyss of Godhead, and the spirit has become one with God. This is great Rani, one of our um, spiritual ancestors of this particular path of yoga. The meaning of union, he continues, is that the heart should be separated from everything save God. And our teacher told me, if you are after a new dress, you are not after God in this moment. It is as severe as that. So, the heart should never be separated from anything. From the, no, sorry, the heart should 
never be separated from God. One should think of nothing but Him, listen to none save Him. It means the heart's attainment to the state in which it is occupied by God only. I say God for the sake of convenience. You see, we cannot name that. If we only say that with capital T, we diminished it, we limited it. But God is a very convenient word. I remember once I uh, lectured in Scotland and it was a talk and I don't know how I happened to mention the absolute. In the Christian time a little lady stood up at the back and said, Miss, what is the absolute? One uses the word God. It is uh, much more convenient. So, to have your heart filled with, filled with that which one can call God, with the exclusion of everything else, says Jani. It is not annihilation, for it subsists in him, not a separate, not as a separate entity, but by absorption and transmutation, now this is important, the word transmutation, for the part has returned to the whole. When, when the heart is free from all distractions, it expresses the light of God fully and completely. It becomes itself the light of God. Now, God, or that. What could it be? It is nothingness. God is absolute emptiness. In that way all the Sufis and mystics <coughs> are in accord with the Buddhists. I always imagined that, I, that something must exist that it seems to be logical that something greater than the human being must exist there is a longing in the heart of every one of us I think really even the agnostics try to believe in something if nothing else they believe in, them, in, in themselves you know I had one day I had a, a lunch with a very famous American businessman he was a director of a very great company he didn't believe in God. He tried to convince me that all that uh, that is all rubbish, it's all nonsense. Here when we die, that's the end. I just listened to him. And then I said, well, do you believe in yourself? Oh, yes. He said, I do. I said, that's good enough. I think he was so staggered. He was eating his fish and he didn't say anything anymore. That was the end of it. <laughs> I didn't explain further why. It was good enough, I think. Rabia of Basra, a woman saint, a mystic of Basra, who was, who was lived in the 8th century, speaks of the eye of the heart. That spiritual sense beyond and above reason by which the divine can be apprehended. If you after a new dress, said Guruji to me as just quoted it before, but I repeat it again because I found it so important, it did a lot to me. Then you are not after God. 
And of course it applies to every one of us. You see, we cannot serve two masters, either the world or God. The heart, our heart cannot serve two masters. Either the little self, the world, this life or God. That's absolutely sure. The mystic, as a rule, is the one who completely surrendered his will to God. So a mystic, in a way, is a yes man to God. You do not exist except in that. And I read that one of the sages said, the time comes when for the devotee there is nothing else to do but to keep himself or herself surrendered to that will. Completely surrendered. Because then it takes over. And the will of the yogi becomes the will of God. Really, you know, it's a terribly simple process. But life becomes very difficult. One has to know what to think. Because what one thinks it becomes. He told us, his disciples, shortly before his death, my pupils are tested with fire and spirit. I don't remember if they left that in the book, maybe they cut that out. Because it has been abridged quite considerably. They are tested with fire and spirit, and never they go wrong. Because responsibility is such that sometimes it's a torment. Half a night one spends in examining oneself. Because, you know, if one has to deal with human souls, it is so easy, so easy to make a wrong step. And the human hearts are so tender. You know, when the heart is broken, it can be mended to a certain degree, but you know, a crystal glass, I don't know if that is crystal. Oh, it's a little bit, it rings. But when a crystal glass, you know, has um, not even broken, how you call it in English? Uh, crack, thank you. The word didn't come in my mind, my mind doesn't work properly. Uh, has a crack, you know, it doesn't ring anymore. When the human heart is broken, it sounds differently. One has to be terribly careful. And never and never we are allowed to hurt another human being. Now here comes another problem and another paradox. When he told me that before sending me back to London, I said to him, but everybody knows that I was with you, Baisar. Baisar means, by the way, elder brother. He didn't want to be called guru. Just an elder brother, one, one little step ahead of all of us, that's all. I said that people know that I was with you. And, well, if I see that somebody does evil, what shall I do? It's the same as if you see your child doing evil. You have to hurt its feelings sometimes. He said, yes, it's difficult. Say one 
twice, seventy times, seventy-seven times, hing and speak and say, but if they don't listen, hit. Ah. But never when it is to your advantage, either from the point of view of prestige or money-wise, then you are helpless and you cannot speak. That's why we are not allowed to deal with money at all. I never charge for anything and I never got and I never will have a penny of royalties, no, for, of anything what spiritual life, what spiritual uh, work is concerned. So you see, the life of a mystic is a costly lifestyle, an endless openness of self-giving love. Total self-giving requires a defenselessness. This is another interesting point. A willingness to be wholly vulnerable. A patience with one's own inadequacy. Sorry. Sometimes the word is said coming out that goes inside. Never mind. You see, I think that's what Jesus meant when he said you must love your neighbor like yourself. We have to be patient with ourselves. It is no use when you sit in meditation, you must always remember him, that microphone I mean, I mean, um, it's no use when you sit in meditation and think, well, my mind is not quite and getting angry and angry with yourself and more and more furious. Be patient. Just look at your thoughts. Well, we are all human. Some days meditation is easy, some days it is very, very difficult. And even now, after so many years, so even now, meditation is not always the same. And I should, I frankly should know better. Now, it is very interesting factor that people come to me and said, and, and say to me, "Oh, you surrender to your teacher." One doesn't surrender to the teacher. It only looks like that. The appearance, the appearances are like that. We surrender really to ourselves. For the outer teacher will always point to the inner teacher, which is our higher self. And we surrender to the light within. And this is the dhyana meditation about which I will go, I will speak to you in a while. Now Buddha has said, I cannot give you truth. But I can give you a dream. Look at me. And your potentialities, your possibilities begin to stir. Something will begin to throb for the future. Something in you will begin to long for that which can be. Here, I can speak in the terms of the electrical technician. If you put electric currents side by side, two wires with two electric currents, one strong one and one weak one, side by side, the stronger one is bound to influence the weak one, and the weak will become just as strong as the strong one. The Buddha said, look at me, and your heart will be begin to throb. Our teacher ordered us to sit in his presence for ten hours a day. And he told us practically nothing. I remember somewhere St. Paul 
said something similar. I quote from memory, you must forgive me. Uh, he said, it is the letter that killeth, but the spirit giveth life. The meaning of it is, it is a quickening process. You see, spiritual life is a quickening. But like you tune a, a string instrument, you make it tighter that the tone is higher, is quicker. That's all what the spiritual life is. It's a quickening. That's why St. Paul says that the knowledge, the letter, is killing, but the spirit quickening you, give it life. And here is also the interesting part of the Sufi gatherings. Sufis are mystics, of course. They consider them Islamic mysticism, but of course it is nonsense. Sufism is much, much older than Islam. They believe that by being in the presence of someone who can quicken you, you will be quickened yourself, like electricity. Exactly. Because magnetism and electricity work very, in a very similar way. So in Sufi gatherings and mystic gatherings, we are just together. It's meditation, of course, and sometimes discipline. Uh, but to be together in friendship, to have a cup of tea to discuss our problems, is just as good. And personally, because my teacher, who had no idea of Carl Jung and of modern psychology, he worked, if I may put it that way, in a completely Jungian way. Our path is a psychological path. I try to prove that this path is entirely psychological path. And the test and the tribulations to which the teacher subjects us are and on the entirely psychological level. You see, in ancient times, a neophyte or a disciple or initiate, call it if you like, is absolutely irrelevant, uh, was subjected to all sorts of trials. They put them in the snake pit and they had to go through dark tunnels which became more and more narrow. We read it in the ancient literature in Egypt and all the ancient Greece. Nowadays, in the modern world, the disciples are subjected entirely to psychological trials. And by Jove, they are just as terrible as those trials which, to which people were subjected in the past. So I just said that nobody can give us truth. No Buddha, nobody. You know, Christ couldn't give us truth. All the great people could do is to point out the way for us. Buddha couldn't, Christ couldn't, nobody can. They point out the way, and we have to walk it. It's our own individual path of our soul. It is the flight of the alone to the alone. That's all. Christ didn't found the religion. He lived his vision and he died for it. Other people after him founded the religion. Now our teacher also said something. He said one day, all religions are good at the beginning because they are founded by great people. But as the thousands of years roll by, it becomes perverted, it becomes altered. Who does it? Oh, maybe those who guide us, the priests, 
or us human beings, only because you see the teaching comes usually, like in the Vedas, they say from gods or from at any rate great sages, but it comes from somewhere, from the level of intuition into the mind of the sage. That is already a distortion because the mind is something very, very low. It's exceedingly important for, to live in this world. It's a magnificent thing. But from a spiritual point of view, we have to steal it. We have to try to raise it in a different state, to make it work in a different space in order that it should be, that it should conceive at least part of the truth. It is, it is a funny thing to say here in the West that the mind is nothing because we have been brought up from our childhood that it is the best part in us, the mind, the intellect. And uh, for all of us who are brought up in academical circles, it is the only, it is the we thing to be intelligent, to have qualifications to understand. And once you come to a teacher or begin to meditate and to steal your mind, you will see that it's really a devil trying to deceive yourself on every level, on every level, really. So nobody can give us truth. We have to get it ourselves. All what they can do is to set an example for us. So the real teaching is not done by lecturing. It's not done by Guruji used to say, if you see me going up a platform and speak, then you know that I came down. Give by example, by state of being. You are. And another thing, a mystic belongs to the solar line of evolution. There is the lunar line and the solar line of evolution since the very, very ancient times. People who worship the moon or who worship the sun. Now, on the solar to the solar line of evolution belong, of course, Buddha and Christ and Mohammed and Krishna and only most of, most of the great people whom we know nowadays. But that means to live in such a way that the sun can see you. There must be no secrets, no skeletons in the cupboard. We have to leave it, I say, well, that like, like in a glass house, perhaps. He used to say, to be taken into the arena, like the ancient gladiators in ancient Rome, who had to die in the arena in front of 20,000 spectators. I don't know if you know the story. They were ushered in the arena, or went in the arena with, with, with music, magnificent men. They stood in front of the Caesar's box, and they shouted, Murmurituriti salutant, dying one greet thee, O Caesar. And the Caesar acknowledged them, all right, and then they fought. And when one gladiator was uh, defeated, it had, he, both his shoulders had to touch the soil, so you see. So the other gladiator put his knee under his chest and looked towards the Caesar. And if Caesar did that, he was spared. But if Caesar did that, he was killed. And we also, we are, take, we are taking into the arena, also for us, 
there is no mercy. Life doesn't give us mercy. And one of the worst things, one of the worst, one of the worst, not the worst fault, but one of the worst faults the human being or the mystic can have is to be sorry for oneself. That is an absolute obstacle. Whatever happens to you, hold your chin high. Never and never be sorry for yourself. Because what is to sorrow for yourself? It belongs to the little self. And that has to come anyway. We don't want the little self. It's only an obstacle. But that little self doesn't go anywhere. It is acknowledged, recognized, and used. Now, it is said in, in psychology that we have a darkness, a shadow. Every human being has got it. We have all the prostitute in us and all the criminal in us. We all have it. You know, there was one picture on the television many years ago. I never forget it. There was a time where the uh, Irish housewives were teaching their children throwing the Molotov cocktails at the British soldiers. And they were showing on the television this housewives of women just passing by in a demonstration. Every one of them had a lovely face of the ordinary working housewife. Good, lovely faces. They were all mothers who were teaching their children to throw Molotov cocktails at the British soldiers. And Jung speaks of the collective evil. My God, what that is. An ordinary human being, a housewife, a mother, teaches her little child, and of course that was many years ago, probably those children now are murderers. All in us. But once we see that, and the teacher again shows one that, uh, the training or the schooling of the disciple is exactly that, it's modern psychology. You know, once we know that it's all in us, we stop criticizing whoever comes to us. I always, personally, I always think, my God, I'm worse, I, I, I know I'm even worse than that. Who am I to criticize? And you know, criticism is the one thing which harms us most. What is criticism? Let's analyze it. Why do we criticize? I'm criticizing something because it hurts me. It hurts me, otherwise I wouldn't criticize it. So there is an echo in me. I always give this example. You cannot say, you cannot tell a dirty joke to a little child because it will not understand it. It's not in him. But unfortunately, we are so ancient. Everything is in us. All the evils are in us. If somebody is beastly to me, let's look at myself. Why this human being reacts like that to me? Now, and please don't tell me it is always my fault. It is. That's the point of view of the yogi. I know I probably will get plenty of questions about that. But it is modern psychology and it is a yogic training. It is always me, remember. The evils, the darkness in me, 
which somehow calls forth the darkness of another human being. We are like mirrors in which people reflect themselves and we reflect in people. And here I would like to speak about something which is extremely esoteric and I do not mention very often. The reflection. Now, here I must begin, rather, go rather far away. He, the infinite one, reflected itself in the manifestation, creating this world. We are created in its or his image. We reflect upon each other. The reflection is neither good nor bad, it is. In this moment my heart reflects upon your heart, of all of you. All of your heart reflects upon my heart. And you see, I didn't intend to speak of reflection. But somehow it was reflected on me just now, and so I began to speak of it. It is very interesting how the audience influences the speaker, how every one of us we learn from others. My teacher told me one day, people will make you. I didn't understand it. I said, what does, I am renouncing the world, I gave everything away. What does he mean? Does he mean that I'm going to be famous or what? I am not after this rubbish. No. He made that, that by learning from people, I will get better. It's reflection. And reflection you will find works on the level of the mind and on the level of the heart in every phase of our life, from morning till evening and evening the night in our dreams. It's a very very question and perhaps I won't go into it because it will lead me away. Unfortunately, like so many people, I have the habit to wander a little bit away. Let's keep to the subject. Now, Meister Eckhart says, God is born in the soul. God is nothingness. I mentioned just before that God is nothing. My teacher's spiritual testament to me was, there is nothing but nothingness. And he said it in such a way that I knew it was three weeks before he died. He was speaking Hindi to a lady. And then suddenly he turned to me and he said in English, there is nothing but nothingness. And I went quite cold. There are moments in your life when you feel that is something quite special. That is the finger of destiny writing something in the sand of your life. There is nothing but nothingness, friends. But this nothingness is absolute bliss, absolute fulfillment, absolute of absolute of everything. Magnificent, unique. But in order to reach this nothingness, which is a terror for the mind, we have to go through no man's land. To walk on water, to be nothing. Niemand's land, they say it in German, no man's land. And there is nobody to give you even a glass of water. 
then you have to stand completely alone and never, never be sorry for yourself. Now, nothingness must be understood on several levels. Mind you, I'm still speaking of mysticism here. I didn't get got away from my subject. First of all, we have to be nothing while living in this world. And the perfect harmlessness, ahimsa in Sanskrit, consists in becoming nothing before life. To see in every being the manifestation of the one is an attitude of surrender to life, in other words. I think Jesus meant to give the other cheek to it, to give the other cheek. Excuse me, my quotations are slightly inadequate because they are mostly from memory. Now, second aspect of nothing, aspect of nothingness can be experienced in a deep state of contemplation. That is, a state of consciousness once the function of the mind has been partly transcended, only partly transcended, during the state of contemplation. Now, we all know that the mind can work only in a threefold way. There must be a knower, the knowledge, and the object to know. We know that. That is, everybody knows that. The mind can comprehend as in this way, that is, outside itself, as I mentioned before, and that is a complete illusion, and it is not correct. That's why the Vedanta calls the mind the power of ignorance. Because it is not outside itself at all, never. But there is a plane, or a space, nearer to reality, where there will be the knowledge and the object to know, but there will be no knower, and that is in the deep state of in the deeper state of meditation, which is a superconscious state. Now the knower becomes the knowledge of the object to know, and it the knower disappears it, and so knows it utterly and completely. You see, this is double Dutch for the mind. Here is the paradox of mysticism. The mind can't know it. It's a power of ignorance. Sorry. In the state of samadhi, which is a superconscious state, one is nothing merged in all, in one complete oneness. There is light, there is infinite peace, and very great bliss. The mystical states are always states of infinite peace. Now there is another interesting point. It is said in all the scriptures that first you realize the self, your higher self, and then you realize God. Now, the being of the higher self is absolute bliss. And the being of God is peace. All of us, when the process of realization begins, mind you, it is not a sudden happening, like a burning bush of Moses or the lightning or thunder. The process of realization goes by stages. It's a little opening of the horizon here and a little opening of the horizon there. So when this state begins, you, the first thing you experience the peace of the absolute and then the joy of the self. 
Nobody ever could explain me that. I asked many very wise people in India and also here. I never asked my teacher because I couldn't speak to him very much, very often. The tradition is that you don't speak to a teacher unless he addresses you first. So we are rather, we disciples, we are rather limited. But this is interesting. If we first realize the self, first bliss must be ours. And peace afterwards when we realize God. No. First you have peace which passes understanding, as it says in the Bible. And then the tremendous bliss. There's constant joy from morning till evening. That's why in the Sufi circles and in the circles of the mystics there is a lot of laughter. They are laughing about everything and giggling about everything. So this is about the nothingnesses which I said. Of course the last, the ultimate nothingness is our lot our ultimate lot at the realization of complete truth. But it is a very, very, it's a very tall order, this is very far away. So the, those are the four cardinal meanings of nothingness, with which the mind of the mystic has to come to terms, so to say. You see, but I think that even in this life, if we look around us with attention, we will find that nothingness surrounds us in every possible way, only somehow we don't notice it. For instance, if, you, if we learn something, we merge into the subject. If we concentrate on something, we become the object of our concentration for a time. It is as if there is, we begin to learn the nothingness already here, but somehow we do not notice it. You know, one day there was a very interesting experience. I had um, to go to, my first husband was a banker, and one day I had to go to a factory to speak to the manager of the factory because either my husband was ill or I had to give him some paper. I don't remember what it was. But I had to go to this very, very big manager of an enormous factory. He had five or six telephones on his desk. Now, he was dictating to the secretary. He was talking to me. Every moment one of the telephones was ringing and he answering all the phones. You know, I was fascinated. I said, this is the training of omniscience for us human beings. Incredible. How really is above so below, is below so above. Somebody, the invisible somebody with capital S, is training us to be like himself. Even on this level of being. As you see, even you, and we are not bank managers or great factory managers, even we, if we watch ourselves attentively, what we do in our daily life, we are learning to become divine one day. We are mending his image. We, our soul is the ray of the spiritual sun. Let's put it that way. 
You see, what we see of each other here, like the Buddhists say, who or what will reincarnate? That will not reincarnate. But something eternal will reincarnate, and that is the ray. Something so evanescent, something so un unpermanent, a little ray. That is our soul. That's all what we are. You know, we say, we Sufis say, only what you cannot lose in a shipwreck is yours. I gave it one day as a seed, as a seed thought to my group. Many people came to me in tears, especially young girls. They said, sweetie, for goodness sake, in, my sh in a shipwreck I can, I can even lose my physical body, I say, yes. So she will say, why, what is mine? I think about it. Just a ray. Difficult to understand. But you see, that is mysticism. Here we deal with ultimate realities, absolutely difficult to understand with our ordinary, everyday mind. Now there are only, there are doctrines which can only be understood from inside. That's why we have to still our mind in order that we should listen to this still small voice speaking to us from inside. You know, God or truth is the still small voice of the conscience which is within you. We all have the spirit of guidance of God within us. In the man in the street who is not at all interested in spiritual life, in ordinary man, mind you, I don't believe in the ordinary of anything, doesn't exist. Nobody's ordinary. I use the word ordinary just to say someone who just um, is not at all interested in spiritual life and lives only this life of this world. There it manifests as the voice of conscience. And that human being has from birth. Even still children instinctively know what is good and what is bad. But in the evolved human being, it is the voice of God. For the goal of every yoga is to lead guided life. Now, I remember Mahatma Gandhi one day was asked, Mahatma Gandhi used to say that he is guided by God always. But Hitler said that also if you remember. So somebody asked Mahatma Gandhi, again his autobiography, said, how do you know that it's the voice of God or the voice in devil in you? Because all the, the Hitler thought that he is guided by the voice of God. But Gandhi, in his very common matter-of-fact way, he said, well, if my actions are that you could attribute them to something higher, then it could be of God. And if you see me doing evil, well, that's obviously the devil, isn't it? Because it was a lovely answer. So there are doctrines, I just said, that can, can be understood only from inside. And they are understood only through a work of assimilation. Again, this is an important word, and I use it deliberately. Or penetration with the pure light of intelligence. Know this. The organ of direct knowledge. And here I come to an extremely esoteric part and will ask you for your complete attention because this is difficult to understand. 
is the pure light of intelligence, which is knowledge, the organ of direct knowledge which goes far beyond the limits of reason. In other words, it is not affected by the limitations of discursive thought. We all have it. There is a mysterious substance in the hearts of men, a mysterious everlasting substance. Great seers of the past believed that there exists a mysterious substance in the hearts of men which when activated by love becomes intuition. Now the soul, the ray, brings this substance when it comes in the manifestation as a human being. This substance is embedded in the very essence of the soul and it is the perceptive sense or the light of intuition. And the traveler on the path of mystic philosophy is this perceptive sense. Not the personality, not you and me as we see as we see and know each other in this world. It is only this something, this little thing in our hearts, infinitely elusive, infinitely permanent. This is the pilgrim, this is the traveler in us. Just see to that. Now those things we do not usually read in books, maybe the reason some books, but this knowledge is usually acquired in meditation. We begin to understand what in us is the traveler on the path. Now this is the dynamic spark, the still small voice or the secret chambers of our heart. which is reserved only for that, for the one, and from where the longing in every human being's heart comes. Every one of us, we have this longing. It is the divine discontent. We may be married very happily. We may love somebody very happily. We may have very satisfying and fulfilled life. And there will always be in certain moments when we are alone with ourselves and we are sincere with ourselves, this longing, this yearning, and you say, yes, I am happy, it's wonderful, I have lovely children, I have lovely husband, or I have lovely wife, and wonderful job, and still, but what? And the heart cries. That is the dynamic spark. And the personality is just taken along with it. There's a divinity in us. And it comes into this life embedded in the very essence of the ray which is our soul. I hope I'm not speaking about your head. No, I am sure I'm not. You understand? Oh, oof. I'm always forgetting him. So you see, it is an additional sense. 
So the perceptive sense, the intuition, when it becomes further developed, it results in absolute intelligence. Not, however, intelligence of the mind, but the light in the heart, distinguishing between truth and glamour or vanity, the bewitchment, the illusion of this world. This is an additional sense which every human being has been given by God. This light of intelligence is a tremendously esoteric subject. You see, we have five senses to enable us to live in this world, but this is an additional sense. I keep repeating it. A spiritual sense. And we all have it. Sometimes it is dimmed. Sometimes it is hidden. Here again, we cannot criticize ever another human being. In every life, we get the best possible chance, the best possible body, according to our karma. Now, if I see another human being whom I consider stupid or dim, if his light is dim, who am I to criticize it? He didn't deserve the better one. Maybe my light seems dim to somebody else. Here the criticism stops. And there again something exceedingly esoteric happens. When the purely animal, instinctual, like and dislike criticism stops, the yogi begins to influence his environment with his mind. And this is than absolute power. What prevents us from having, from, to have this power is the constant criticism, the constant like and dislike. I like this, I dislike that. Every animal is capable of that. You kick a dog, he bites you. We avoid the pain and we, love, we like the pleasure. Now, the yogic contentment is not that, it's something entirely different, it's the opposite of it. The yogi is contented with everything. He will see this, thy will be done. You mean the Lord's Prayer is, I think, the greatest prayer of the world. If you begin to analyze it word, word by word, it's absolute surrender to that infinite power. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And once we become like that, we have no will, we say yes to everything, we are infinitely contented, we never criticize others. That's why on the door of the initiation, initiation temples, the gate of the initiation temples in ancient Greece, it was written, Enter, O initiate, man of great courage, for thou hast conquered thyself, the most difficult thing in the world. That's really difficult to conquer oneself. But once we conquer, conquer oneself, once we know how to sweep our, in front of our own threshold, well, I think there would be no wars. Because if I hurt you, I hurt myself. It's simple as that. Every mystic knows that. And it is interesting that many people, like the lovely lady this morning, she was telling us, Exactly that. She had the experience that when she 
heard somebody else, she hurts herself. I thought this was fascinating. We learn it in the books, we learn it through our religious teachers, but she knew it somewhere, somehow. Aren't we divine, we human beings? Children of light. And without this additional sense, the spiritual sense in our heart, we will not be able to reach our goal, the spiritual home. We won't be able to. And it is called also the eye of the heart. This kind of spiritual sense in our heart, this mysterious substance, which is the pilgrim and the past. It is the eye in the heart, the perceptive sense, the innate knowledge, which is also the spirit of guidance from God and with which we are born. I keep repeating it, it's tremendously important. Repetition helps. So, mysticism, quite simply means union. And yoga means union. From yoga to unite, this yoga is Sanskrit. As soon as it becomes clear to us, then we take a closer look to it, that yoga is a mystic strive for the same goal, which is the union with the ultimate truth, and yoga and mysticism is the same thing, then somehow the thing falls in its place, like in a jigsaw puzzle. All throughout the centuries, all religions, all theologians were suspicious of yogis and mystics, openly declaring the former to be an unbalanced nonsense and the latter to be emotion lotus eaters and idle drones. Nothing can be more divorced from reality than such a superficial judgment. Yogis and mystics are responsible men and women, striving for self-perfection. And perfection means completeness, all-roundness, so to say. That is, person can competent in this as well in the other spiritual world. As strong as a lion and as gentle as a dove, says the mystic. And it all boils down to one thing. It is all really one infinite longing of our finite hearts. It's a magnificent thing. To be a human being and the only goal of the human being is to return to its origin, to its source, which is the goal. For the source and the goal is one, the same thing. Here is a quotation, I don't know from where, but it's a good one. Mysticism cannot be defined in words, in the form of doctrines, theories, or philosophical statements, because mysticism is an inner experience. In order to know an inner experience, one must arrive at that experience. 
If this say to a person who never had a headache in his life what a headache is, he will never understand. Therefore, therefore, the word mysticism means nothing. Only through the inner experience it can be known. And generally the mystic doesn't explain the things very clearly. To the mystic to whom the truth is an inner experience, it is so evident that he does not even bother to explain it. Even when asked, one only gets a casual answer. One might make call it pride, perhaps, I don't know. But pride? But the proud inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is not a pride as we know it. It is pride in God which makes the mystic feel the emptiness of all other things in this world, the insignificance of all the things to which most people attach such great importance. The only law for the mystic is a constant striving to reach his ideal, which is perfection, or truth, or God. Words do not matter. In finding God, he finds himself.